0: Well, we had a <clears throat> wonderful Thanksgiving of praise last Sunday night. It was a great time to hear the testimonies from folks in the congregation. Uh, but tonight we're gonna return to First Samuel chapter 13 now. Our study of 1 Samuel, if you remember, is uh, themed under the idea of lessons from the heart. There's a lot of lessons, a lot of hearts that are exposed. Some show us good things, good lessons of how God wants to mold and shape our hearts and how our hearts should be yielded to him. And, and then, of course, some negative lessons of those whose hearts were not where God wanted them to be. When we arrive at chapter 13, the nation is unified behind their new king, Saul. Israel has recognized their sin and demanding for a king. And with those things done, it's now time to move forward and to end Israel's stalemate with the Philistines. And so while Saul does take some time to settle into his new role, he does not wait long before rallying Israel to fight the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, they are better equipped than Israel, they have chariots, but remember the Lord helped Israel defeat the Ammonites, so it's certainly not difficult for the Lord to help them against the Philistines. All they need to do is trust and obey, and foolishly, Saul fails to do that. So chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gabeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard about it, and Saul blew the trumpet through all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had an abomination with the Philistines. And so the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Here we see that Saul decides to deal with the Philistines, and it gives us a timestamp here. Says Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul made this decision. Now, if you don't have a King James Bible, you may, you may have all sorts of different things in this verse out there. The NIV says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and when he had reigned for 42 years. The, I didn't write down what that was. The new, I think it's New American Standard, says that he was a, oh, I'm sorry, the ESV says that he was a year old when he became king, claiming that it had been a year since God turned him into a new man. The King James Version, New King James, they both say that Saul reigned for a year, alluding to his first year when Israel wasn't entirely united behind him uh, instead of his age when he became king. And I had a bunch of other translations in here that what they say, and apparently I hit the backspace button at some point and it's missing. But that's okay, you get the point. Uh, I think if we grabbed about five different translations here, you'd get five different year markers there. Well, before I explain why that is, I must point out that Saul's age when he began his reign has zero theological impact upon this passage. The different numbers used by different translations change nothing in this chapter. So, of course, the question is, why are the numbers so different between translations? The reason is because there's no word to translate here. It literally reads this, Saul, son of a year, became king. In other words, it's an unfinished sentence. Son of what year? How old was he? That's the way they would say how old someone was. Son of his 30th year, 40th year, first year, second year. It's a blank. There's nothing there. It's an unfinished sentence. Saul became king at the age of blank. Why did the author leave the sentence unfinished? Well... Some suggest that the correct number dropped out as the scriptures were copied over time, you know, various copies and stuff. And while that is possible, I'd like to suggest a much easier and more reasonable solution. And that is, the writer had no clue how old Saul was when he started his reign. And so writing it with a blank was like saying, I don't know how old Saul was when he started his reign, but two years into his reign, he did this. Now... You might be saying, but isn't the Bible inspired? The, doesn't the Lord know how old Saul was when he started his reign? Yes. But we as Christians do not believe in an inspiration that ignores the human medium. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it tells us we believe about inspiration. It says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, what we mean by that is what it, the holy men... Spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The phrase they're moved, it means like the wind filling the sails of a ship. So the idea is these guys, when they sat down to write something, to share a message or to record a history or to write a letter to a church, it's because they really wanted to do those things. It was in their heart. And the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit moved them, filled their sails in such a way that everything they wrote was exactly what God wanted us to hear. So the writer here, he could not know how old Saul was, even though God does know how old Saul was when he began his reign. But the Holy Spirit didn't think it was necessary for us to know that information. So as the guy was writing down, whoever it was that wrote 1 Samuel was writing this down, the Holy Spirit didn't move him and say, go do some research. It wasn't necessary. Now, while Saul's age when he began his reign doesn't have an impact on this section of Scripture, Saul's actions two years into his reign do. And so in verse 2, it says he selected men to be these specialized troops. Now, before I move on to verse 2, if you have a translation of the Bible that states that two not two years into his reign, but that Saul reigned for 40 or 42 years at the end of this verse... The reason that is is because those are the translations that believe this verse is missing information. And so they decide here, well, since it's missing this other information, it doesn't make sense to say this here. And so they add even more what they consider missing information. This is one of the reasons that I do prefer the King James Version or the New King James Version of the Bible more than some modern translations. I think some modern translations in my own personal studies they insert too much interpretation rather than just, than just translate what the text says. And that's what I'm all about. I just want to know what the text says. I want to know what the Lord said. I don't want to know what your ideas were when I'm reading my Bible. If I want to know what your ideas are, I'll go get a commentary. When I'm reading my Bible, I just want to know what it says. And that's one of the reasons I do prefer that. It doesn't mean it's the only one. It doesn't mean it's the best one, even though I think that way. If you have a different version, it's fine. This is a very difficult portion to translate. Verse 2. It says, Saul chose him out, 3,000 men of Israel. Now, this is Israel's first national army, their first standing army. While these men did have tribal ties, their loyalty was now first to their king. And that's a new thing. Israel had never had that before. Now I mentioned here that 2,000 stayed with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel. This is a little over four, four miles north of Saul's home. It was about 2,000 feet in elevation above sea level, and it overlooked the pass that led through that area to the Jordan River Valley. In other words, this would be a place where they could catch almost any type of Philistine troop movements. The second group, it was only a 1,000, and they were with Jonathan in Gabeah of Benjamin. That is Saul's hometown. Uh, this would counter the Philistine garrison that was on the hill a few miles to the north and then put the Philistine garrison now wedged between two Israeli armies, okay, which is what Saul's, that's his planning there. So by setting this up, Saul was putting guards on the border where the Philistines would most likely attack so he could see it. And he would put his men in position to surround the garrison if they decided to go on the offensive. Every other soldier, if we read here, it mentions the rest of the people. He sent every man to his tent. They were all sent back home with the understanding they'd be called up if necessary. Now, this decision was likely made way back in chapter 12 at Gilgal, where Israel celebrated their victory over the Ammonites, and they unified under King Saul's leadership, his kingship. So this is what they decided to do. We've taken care of the Ammonites. Now it's time to deal with the Philistines. Now, I do want to point out that this is the first mention of Saul's oldest son, Jonathan. That he is commanding troops means he's an adult at this point, And thus, Saul must be at least 40 years old. Some people put him up to 60 or 70 at this point in time. I, I don't imagine I mean, maybe he was a real fit guy, and he's chucking spears at David at that age, but my guess is he's not probably that old. And I can't imagine Jonathan being 40 or 50 years old and being David's best friend, you know, as a little guy. So it would be my guess that Saul is likely around 40 years old at this point. Now, Jonathan is one of the most beloved people in all the Bible. Um, We will get to all the reasons why he is as we progress through the rest of 1 Samuel. But for now, we're going to see in verse 3 that he goes on the offensive first. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard about it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Again, Geba is about a few miles north of Jonathan's army, a few miles south of Saul's army. And archaeologists have found this Philistine fortress of Geba. The excavation showed that it was indeed destroyed and then later rebuilt by Saul. They have found pieces of of pottery and things like that that have Saul's name on it. And they have discerned that they rebuilt the city and they turned it into Saul's palace. I say palace, but what they discovered is it was more of a fortress. Taxes and bureaucracy weren't really a thing yet for Israel's new monarchy. And, And so with the Philistines around for Saul's entire reign, he didn't have much time for luxury, much time for a palace. So it says here that Jonathan smote them, he destroys the garrison, and it says that the Philistines heard about it. Now, peace had existed between Israel and the Philistines based on Samuel's victory eight years earlier. We read about that earlier. It's where the Ebenezer part of that song comes from, okay, in 1 Samuel. But over these last few years, the Philistines had forced the deal to change, making it more and more difficult for Israel to keep the peace with them. One of the things we'll learn later on in this chapter is that, and the next chapter is that the Philistines, part of the deal was they had forbidden Israel from making any weapons. And so they didn't have a good armory in that sense to pull weapons from at this point in time. They were out-equipped. They were out-technologyed. I don't know if that's a phrase. But the Philistines had a great advantage through these deals that they had made with Israel to keep the peace. And as long as the Israelis acquiesced to their increasing demands, the Philistines didn't attack. But this offensive is going to change all of that. And Saul knows that. So when he knows the Philistines hear about it, he blows the trumpet throughout all the land. Saul literally means he sent trumpeters throughout every tribe saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And of course, it's the news that they've attacked the Philistines. War is coming. And so verse 4, it says that all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, but they also heard something else. They also, that Israel was had in abomination. The word there means, or phrase means to become a stench. Israel had become a stench with the Philistines, and so the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Now, I personally have had some nasty stenches in my house. We've had plumbing issues a few times, and it's not pleasant when that happens. And there's only thing, two things you can do to fix a nasty stench. You can remove it, or you can remove yourself from its presence. Those are your only options. And Saul knew the Philistines would not remove themselves, that it was time to prepare for war. And so all the people were gathered together after Saul to Gilgal. In other words, Saul retreats his smaller force into the Jordan Valley, to, the, to be reinforced for this massive Philistine counterattack. And in verse 5, we see that it comes. And the Philistines, verse 5, gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up, and they pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth-Avon. Now when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed... Then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and so the people were scattered from him." Well, first off, we need to look at this massive Philistine army. It mentions here that they gathered themselves together to fight 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Now, there is only a slight difference between the word for 30,000 and the word for 3,000 in Hebrew. All of the Syriac and Arabic copies of this verse in the Old Testament say not 30,000, but 3,000. And since no ancient army in history has ever fielded 30,000 chariots that we know of, it's likely the smaller number is correct. Still, 3,000 chariots is a lot, (laughs) especially when you have zero, okay? When you have none. Remember the Lord had told them, some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but what was Israel's cry? We will trust in the name of the Lord our God, right? God told them, don't get a big cavalry, don't trust in chariots. And so Israel did not. They were always at a disadvantage from a human perspective because they did not have a large cavalry. They didn't have a large chariot force. They didn't have any chariots. And so this provided a massive advantage to the Philistines due to their mobility. Now, that advantage was limited to certain terrain, so the Philistines would have to fight them in certain places. So it's not like chariots couldn't be countered. But, If you were to take on chariots and horsemen in an area where they could be used to that advantage, it was terrifying. Not only that, but it says, they were numbered as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. In other words, the Philistines brought their full might to reverse the freedom that Samuel had won eight years earlier. This advance that they are making into Israel is designed to completely subject the Israelis to return things to how they were before Samson had come along. Now, they come into Israel, and they stop at Michmash. That's where Saul's troops, if you remember his 2,000 men, were before they retreated to Gilgal. So here they are. They're in Israeli territory, and they are looking for a fight. And the problem is, Israel doesn't have a Samson this time. They have a Saul. And while Saul may have stood head and shoulders above every Israeli, that was just a natural advantage. Samson gave them a supernatural advantage. And natural advantage was not going to be enough to fight this. And so it says that when the Israelis see them coming in, they flee. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, the word there means to be in a state of intense trouble it says for the people were distressed in other words the philistines had already started to oppress them the word they're distressed means to oppress to be oppressed or to experience hardship as the philistine army advanced normal israeli life came to a halt so they fled the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and rocks and high places and in pits and the army wasn't much better for it says that some of the hebrews they went over jordan to the land of gad and gilead they moved to canada they went across the border. They went over the river to the place where they had defeated the Ammonites, where the Philistines had never gone before. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, but all the people followed him trembling. They were terrified. Now, it would be very tempting at this moment to say, for you and me, This is a horrible plan, Saul. You clearly did not think this through. Hey, what do you think we should do? Let's go attack this garrison of the Philistines. We can take them. All right, let's do that. What's next? I don't know, I didn't think that far. Well, now we've got 3,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. We can't even count how many Philistine soldiers are coming to attack us. What are we gonna do? I don't know. It can be tempting to say, you didn't think this through, Saul. And I imagine there were many in Israel who thought that way, which is why they were trembling. But I'd like to suggest that Saul... Did this. He attacked the Philistine garrison at the Lord's instruction through the prophet Samuel. Look at verse 8. And it says, He tarried seven days in Gilgal according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. Now, tarried sounds like inaction, action, that he wasn't doing anything. But Saul was, wasn't doing nothing. The word tarried actually means to wait. Saul waited in Gilgal according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. The word or phrase set time, it means a designated time set by an authority figure. Authority figure. Well, there is no higher authority than the king of Israel. So what higher authority could be setting some appointment for King Saul? The only higher authority is the Lord. Since no one has more authority than the king in Israel than the Lord, this can only be God's plan. And thus far, everything happened just like the Lord told Saul it would. Now, when did Samuel give these orders from the Lord? We can't know for sure, but I think this was the plan from the beginning. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, we have this strange phrase that we don't really get much follow-up on until here. It says in chapter 10, verse 7, after all these signs prove to you that you're going to be the king, Saul, that all... You're the one that everyone in Israel is hoping for. When all that happens, verse 7, Samuel instructed him with this. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 7. And let it be when these signs are come unto you, that you do as occasion serve you, for God is with you. You do what the Lord tells you to do. You do what's in your heart. And then you shall go down before me, after you do it, to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shall you tarry until I come to you, and then I will show you what you shall do, what the next step is. I fully believe that from the beginning, when before Saul was king, that when Samuel pulled him aside, and I don't remember the name of the city that they were in, but pulled him aside in that city where they first met, and he said to him, you're gonna be the next king of Israel, and this sign's gonna happen, this sign's gonna happen, and this sign's gonna happen. And when you see that happen, and you're a different man. God changes your heart. Whatever it is that God puts in your heart to do, do it. When God tells you to lead and tells you to do something, do it. The Lord is with you. And after you do it, go to Gilgal. Wait for seven days there. I will come. We will sacrifice in the Lord. We will seek his face. And he'll tell us what the next step is. And we'll proceed from there. Now, that is how the Lord works. <laughs> remember when the Lord was with, uh, he told Philip, he said, Philip, I know there's a revival going on in Samaria, but I want you to go down to Gaza where there is desert. Lord, I'm here preaching the gospel. I'm seeing people get saved. I'm discipling Christians. Why would I go down to Gaza where there's not more believers that need to be discipled or more unbelievers that need to get saved? Why would I go to a place that's a desert? That would be the question I would have asked. Philip does not. He goes down to Gaza and that's all he knows. I would have been like, well, what's going to happen when I get there, Lord? And if I didn't know, I know that would be a struggle to go. But Philip goes. And then when he gets there, this guy with a chariot comes pulling by. And Lord says, hey, go near to the chariot. You want me to just go walk near the chariot? That, I mean, again, I'm not saying what Philip thought. I'm telling what I would have thought. You want me to just go walk to next to the chariot, Lord? This guy looks like he's a pretty important figure. He's got all these soldiers around him. They don't probably let visitors just come and hang out and walk next to the chariot. But that was the only next instruction he had and then when he finally got up there he overhears the guy reading the scriptures and he says do you understand what you're reading he goes how can I unless someone explain it to me and so Philip hops in the chariot and leads him to Christ <laughs> God works that way he doesn't lay out the 10 step plan for us God only has the next step plan <laughs> here's the next step what's after that I'll tell you when you get there. But do the next step. Be obedient to me. It took great faith for Saul to do what he did here. Great obedience to do what he did here. And so now he's waiting, just like the Lord told him to. Wait for me in Gilgal. And so he was. Now, as day two, day three, day four, day five, and day six, and finally day seven, looks like it's going to go by. The Bible tells us that Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from Saul. Samuel's an Osho, and Saul's soldiers. Remember, he's only got three thousand guys with him, and then whoever else had been summoned there to Gilgal, they start deserting. Do you know? This is the moment when our faith is most tested and most revealed. In that moment. When you've done what God told you to do, and now it looks like it's not going to work out. That's when our faith is most tested and most revealed. When it seems like there's no hope and no time for a solution, yet the end has not actually arrived. That's when our faith is most revealed and most tested. Now, there are those who will tell you in that moment, you're a fool. There is no logical way waiting results in winning at this point. They will tell you that's foolish. You have to take matters in your own hands. You have to do something. And because of how difficult this pressure can be and how poorly most of us fare in trusting God under that pressure, I have found that the enemy has two tactics in those moments that he uses. First off, I have found that the enemy likes to drastically distort how close to the end we really are. That if We don't act now if we don't do something. Disaster is literally right around the bend. In other words, fear tactics. Ideas designed to get us to act out of fear of what will happen if we don't act. The second thing I've seen the enemy do is he likes to get us focused on our dwindling strength instead of God's faithful promise. In other words, Ideas designed to get us to lean on our own understanding. Those are two of the enemy's tactics. The Bible says we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. He gives us ideas designed to get us to act out of fear, and he gives us ideas designed to get us to lean on our own understanding. Now, acting out of fear or leaning on my own understanding will always end up with a foolish response. Always. If we could put those verses up there, I'd like to share a few with you, what the Bible has to say about trusting the Lord and about the danger of not trusting the Lord, of giving in to fear, all right? So you have Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whosoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 1533, it says Oh, did I not put that one up there? Maybe I didn't. I'll turn to that one and I'll read it to you. In fact, I know I didn't put it up there. Proverbs 1533, it says this the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. If you want things to work out, you have to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. You have to listen to his wisdom. And then Psalm 92, 5, and 6. I love it. Oh Lord, how great are your works! Your thoughts are very deep. But here's the kicker a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand that. God has thought everything through. He has a plan. And so when he gave us his word that laid down instructions on what to do, we don't have to look at our dwindling numbers. We don't have to listen to the fear tactics of the enemy and say, God, you haven't really thought this through. If I do what you say, it's not going to work out. That's what a senseless man does. He doesn't get that God has thought this through, that his works are great. He knows how to do things better than anyone else does. And so acting out of fear or leaning on our own understanding will always end up with a foolish, senseless response. Saul, who started his reign with a humble heart, he gives in to the fear and he leans on his own understanding. He says, if I wait any longer, I won't have enough men left to fight. And in giving in to that fear and in leaning on his own understanding, he disobeys obeys a clear command from the Lord look at verse 9 and Saul said bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings and he offered the burnt offering now it is very possible that there were priests present who did these sacrifices. It, we see frequently where it mentions that David made an offering to the Lord, and it doesn't mean he did. It means he brought the animals to the priests, and they, made, they did the actual slaughtering and sacrificing. It's possible that priests did this, and it wasn't Saul who made the offering. Saul is clearly forbidden in the law to make an offering because he's not a priest, but just as clearly was the command from the Lord To wait for seven days. And no matter how much of his numbers were dwindling, no matter how much it looked like there was no way to beat the Philistines if he didn't do something now, the truth is, seven days aren't up yet. Right? Seven days aren't up yet. And so when Saul did this, he disobeyed the Lord. Now, there can be no devotion to God in disobedient actions. None. None. No devotion to God can be found in disobedient actions. Disobedience is always the realm of self-devotion, no matter how reasonable my excuse may seem. Disobedience is always the realm of self-devotion, no matter how reasonable the excuse may seem. And whenever I make an excuse for disobedience, it reveals that foolishness exists within my heart. The dictionary describes foolish like this. It says it means lacking good sense, lacking judgment. Now, the Bible defines wisdom as loving what God loves and trusting his ways. So if wisdom is loving what God loves and trusting his ways, and foolishness is lacking good sense or judgment, then the opposite of wisdom, foolishness, means not loving what God loves and not trusting his ways. And that leads to lacking good sense and lacking good judgment. (laughs) Therefore, when I lean on my own understanding and I love what God doesn't, I will always lack good judgment in my decision-making. And this foolishness in Saul's heart is proven when Samuel shows up on time just after Saul finishes disobeying the Lord. Look at verse 10. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. Now, I read this and I I chuckle because how many times I have experienced my own behold where I've decided, I, I, can't, I can't wait any longer, Lord. I, I can't trust you. i got to do this. i got to do this my way. And then I go do it my way, and then I look up after doing it my way, disobeying the Lord, and the Lord comes through with an answer. I have had so many moments like that in my life where I've looked up, and behold, here comes Samuel walking in. And I think, did I really only just need to trust you for a few more minutes? learn from Saul's failure. Learn from my failures. Please do things the Lord's way and save yourself the headache. Now, Saul at this point could have repented and fallen on his knees and been like, oh man, I blew it. That would have been the right response. But instead, it says that Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. The word actually means to bless him. Saul's thinking, oh, wonderful. Now that you're here, we can get on with the war. I've done the offerings, now you can tell me what the next step is. That's actually his mindset. What's the Lord's next set of instructions? Saul actually believes he's done nothing wrong. But this was a smart decision. This was the necessary decision to succeed. But when Samuel sees that the burnt offering has already been done, he's horrified. Look at verse 11. And Samuel said, what have you done? Done. You clearly didn't obey the Lord. What on earth did you do, Saul? And so Saul gives his explanation. And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you came not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mi'kmaq. Therefore I said, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. Therefore, I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. Let's look at what he actually says first. He says, because, so here's his excuse. Because, number one, I saw that the people were scattered from me. The very definition of leaning on my own understanding, right? What I can see, what I can hear, what I can think, what I can feel. All of my my inputs, I I made a decision based on my inputs. Forget about the Lord's input, I based it on my input. The very definition of leaning on my own understanding. He saw. Then he says, and that you came not within the days appointed. That is a lie. Samuel was pushing it close to the deadline, but he wasn't late. He had not come. And then thirdly, He says that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Mishmash. He goes on to say, therefore, I said, the Philistines will come down now. Saul made his decision based on an unknown that he believed he knew the answer to. Saul did not know the Philistines' battle plans. They hadn't moved from their camp yet. In fact, what we're going to learn later on in the chapter is they won't move there for quite some time. The now does not exist. Saul's excuses were based on limited information, flat-out lies, and his own flawed calculations. Now, looking at it after the fact makes it easy to point at Saul and say, yeah, you loser, what were you thinking? But we do the very same thing whenever we lean on our own understanding. The enemy presents us with enough information to convince us something is true when it's not. He points out enough facts to convince us we're out of time when truly we're not. He brings enough negatives to our attention to convince us that we have no other option but to do something when God can still act on our behalf. That's what the enemy does. And Saul fell for it. And so he said, therefore, I forced myself and offered a burnt offering because I had not made supplication unto the Lord. That phrase... To make supplication, it means to stroke the face. I had not touched the face of God yet. So I went ahead and just did an offering instead. When Saul listened to the lies of the enemy instead of the Lord, he turned a time of seeking God's face into a dead ritual. Intimate worship was exchanged for the next thing on the checklist. He says, I forced myself. I offered a burnt offering. The word forced myself, it means to pull oneself together after a strong internal conflict. In other words, Saul knew what he was doing was wrong. He says, I know I disobeyed the Lord, but I had no other choice. I wanted to spend close time with the Lord. I wanted to seek his face and hear his will, but in the end, I sacrificed all of that so we could at least go into battle with his blessing. I'll take that. As if God was somehow obligated to bless him because he went through the motions? There is so much wrong with this response. So much foolishness. And when Samuel hears the reasoning of King Saul, he knows that Saul will never be the king God originally planned to give the nation. And he'll never be a man after God's own heart. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. It means you have made a poor decision. You have lacked understanding. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Disobedience is always a poor decision. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Jehovah's not just some deity in the heavens that needs to be appeased or titillated for blessings. You have a relationship with your God soul, an amazing, loving, powerful God who wanted to do so much for you. So much more than just be a, a check mark on your list of things that had to be accomplished to obtain his blessings. For now, Samuel says, would the Lord have established your kingdom upon, upon Israel forever? He says, Saul, your family would have been a dynasty. The whole reason that Israel wanted a king for stability, they didn't like the fact that judges were different people coming from different tribes and who knew where they'd spring up. God would have established you. He would have made your family a dynasty and Israel would have had that stability. But Samuel goes on to say that will not be the case now. Your kingdom will end with you, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord needs a different kind of man to lead his people than someone who will give in to pressure Saul someone who won't trust the Lord? What kind of a man does that? He says, the Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. The word after means suitable to, moldable to, just like or just as. Saul revealed here that he was a man whose heart was much more like Israel than it was like the Lord's. It was much more suited to Israel the Israelis, than it was to the Lord's plans. Saul, as we'll see throughout the course of his reign, always cared more what people thought and what the odds looked like than stroking the face of God. In the early days when me and Beverly had first planted the church up in Sanford, we had a friend of ours who served in another Calvary chapel, and they had put out a couple worship songs and One of my favorites is a song called City of Peace. And the chorus goes like this. I will walk with my God. I will touch his face. I will ever know his sweet embrace. And I will cast down my crowns before his throne as the angels are singing, worthy are you, Lord. The book of Revelation talks about how we will see his face how we will be there in front of Him. We won't need a sun to light the earth because the Lord will be the light. The intimacy that we will have with our our God will be so close, and that's what Saul had with the Lord, and he traded it for something far inferior. It's interesting. When I prioritize other things over the Lord, my time with him, I kick it down the bucket, you know, kick the bucket down the road as far as my time with him. The Lord never condemns me when I come to him. When I finally come to him and I open the word and I spend time with him and I begin to touch his face in that sense, to make supplication like Saul said here, he never berates me. He never condemns me. There's just always that sense of that still small voice saying, Why did you wait so long? Why didn't you come earlier? God was always here. This was always waiting for you. What could have been better than that? That's why God let David's line continue, even though David seemed to do far worse things than Saul did here. Why in some ways Saul was probably a more moral king than David was. Saul's actions reveal a foolish heart, one that would never crave a closeness with God over his personal success as a ruler. You'll get to a later portion in 1 Samuel when Saul doesn't kill the the Amalekites, and Samuel says, enough's enough, Saul, the Lord's done And Saul reaches and grabs his garment because Samuel's just leaving him and rips the garment and he says, in the same way, the kingdom's going to be ripped from you, Saul. And Saul says this to Samuel, please don't go. Stay with me so the people can see you giving the offerings and me with you and they'll think everything's fine. That was always more important to Saul. His success as a ruler more important than his closeness with God. The foolish heart, like that, it makes Saul a very dangerous man to be on a throne. Very dangerous man, indeed. Now, when Samuel said this to Saul, was, there, was it over? I mean, is it done? I don't believe that. I do think there could have been a place of forgiveness, and even restoration for Saul. In fact, we see in the scriptures that God frequently renders such heavy judgments for the purpose of drawing us to repentance. Remember what he did with uh, Moses? Remember he told Moses, you know, stand aside, Moses. I'm gonna wipe out the whole nation. I'll start over with you. And what did Moses do? He cried out to the Lord. No, Lord, don't do that. He falls on his face. He cries out to the Lord. He appeals to God's character and mercy and grace and forgiveness. and, And of course, what does the Lord do? He forgives and he restores the difference between Moses and David and so many others who experienced restoration and forgiveness. The difference between them and Saul is that not only did Saul have a foolish heart that craved personal success over closeness with God, Saul also didn't have a heart of repentance. We have no record of Saul admitting he was in the wrong here to Samuel, never. In fact, we have no record of him asking how to make things right. All we see Saul doing is going on with the next thing. Look at verse 15. And Samuel arose, and he got him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him about 600 men. Samuel arose. He didn't continue with the rest of the offerings, he didn't make a sin offering for Saul, no trespass offering for Saul, nothing. Samuel just leaves, he's done. And he goes to where the enemy is. The enemy is only four miles north of Kibbeah, of Benjamin. It's almost like he says, Saul, you want to make things right? I'll be waiting in your hometown. I'll be right where you can find me. But Saul doesn't follow him. There's no confession, no repentance. He goes right along with his plan, thinking he's done enough to seek God's blessing to fight a massive Philistine army with only 600 men. (laughs) To which I would say, Good luck because whether you had 600 or 600,000, you were going to need the Lord's help to win this thing, Saul. Now, I'm going to stop here because we're going to see a little bit here of Saul kind of becomes now, his brooding part starts to kick in, and we're going to see how Jonathan, his godly son, keeps trusting the Lord even though his dad's put the whole army in a mess. And so we'll pick that up next Sunday night. We'll pick it up in verse 16. We'll try to cover the rest of 13 and all of 14, but we'll see what the Lord does and see how far we get. But this evening, I want to close with a scripture from Matthew chapter 7. And if you're thinking, wow, Pastor, well, you're finishing early. Yes, I have to balance the scales and make up for all the time I went late this morning. But I want to close by reading to you Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus, at the very end of his Sermon on the Mount, he concludes this. Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat upon that house, did not fall. For it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We're going to look at Saul's life and it's not just going to be a fall it is going to be a great catastrophic fall. The Lord has so much better planned for you and me. Amen? So let's trust what he says. Let's be doers of the word. Let's be wise. Build our house upon the rock. Let's not give in to fear. Let's not lean on our own understanding. Even when it looks like we're up against a deadline, even when it looks like there's, there's no way, even when it looks like, the, you know, that the enemy's squeezing in and there's no escape, let's trust the Lord. Let's do what he said. Let's obey his commandments. And in doing so, let's watch him come through, even if it's at the 11th hour. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. There is no one like you, Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. So Lord, you call us, you command us to trust you with all our hearts. To not lean on our own understanding, but always take you into account. Lord, if it's a financial need, if it's a health need, if it's a relationship need, if it's some other need that I've not mentioned, the reality is no matter how late, It looks like you might be. Lord, all you have to do is speak and everything's fine. So Lord, we commit this evening to be those who will not listen to the fear tactics of the enemy, who seeks to give us some information, enough information for us to be fearful and to make a bad decision, to not listen to flat out lies, but rather to hold your commandment in your word high to cling to it to rest in it to trust in it we've decided to do that tonight Lord And for everyone who's struggling tonight with something Lord to find that it's so hard to give it to you Lord I've been there I know what it's like to wrestle with you too Lord remind them of your love remind them of your faithfulness that you never fail that you never let us down that you will not leave us or forsake us, but you'll be faithful to the end. Please remind them of that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.